you know, going going a wee ways back. Uh, in the lead up to Pentecost, we spent about seven seven weeks or so just really focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit and the identity of the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. And we talked about about the way that uh, the events at Pentecost that are described in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, um, really mirror the the story of the Sinai event. You know, when God redeemed the Hebrew people and um, formed them into a people and gave them this unique privilege of being a people who carry His His name. So both Pentecost and Sinai are this moment where God gives His name to His people, lets them carry it. Um, and when the Spirit is poured out on the on the gathering of Jesus' disciples in the upper room, um, the people of God at that moment were reanimated. Um, it was a continuation of the people of God, but it was a reanimation of the people. Um, <clears throat> the difference was that God's personal presence came to dwell amongst the, the people. So uh, unlike in Sinai, uh, the, the presence of God, the living God, came to dwell within each believer. Um, yeah, his empowering presence, empowering them to be who he called them to be. And we talked about the way that the Old Testament prophets, especially Ezekiel and Jeremiah, had anticipated this moment um, and used this metaphor of God giving the people a new heart, uh, taking out the heart of stone and writing his words on their heart, um, putting a heart of flesh into them and filling their heart with his spirit. So... Uh, this is all part of a bigger fulfillment of a promise that God is, has fulfilled and is fulfilling amongst us. And again, the reason for all of this is that he wants to form a people that bear his name. He wants, to, he wants his name to be known. He wants his name to get out there. He's interested in this. <clears throat> he wants all nations, he wants all peoples to know, to know him and to know his name, to know who he is and to find their home in him. And he created uh, us as a church to be a people who, who reflect his name, a, a living icon of Christ, if you like, a people who look like Christ and who will draw uh, people in, people in to see who God is. <coughs> We've also emphasized, you know, that this is a communal project, this, this mission of God to form us into a living icon is a communal project. It's um, the church is a collective affair. The gospel is a collective affair, and it includes the individual, but it doesn't stop with the individual. It it, it sort of manifests itself in um, in the group of the church and the people. So as we have pondered all of this, this I think quite you know spectacular vision really of of what it means to be a people who bear God's name and represent His character. Um, We've just wanted to slow down a bit and just really ponder what, what that looks like, what it would really look like for us to be a people who carry his name, what sort of characteristics this living icon of Christ would have, what a, what a community that looks like Christ would look like. So we've been drawing <clears throat> deeply from Paul, um, from Paul's language in Galatians, where he talks about the spirit community being characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control. And we've also been drawing from John 15, where Jesus refers to himself as the vine and us as the branches that bear fruit. That's where the fruity metaphor comes from. So um, the fruit is a, is a byproduct of abide, abiding in the vine. It's not something which we drum up within ourselves. It's not some sort of self-improvement um, project. 
We don't have to come up with a whole lot of motivational slogans to achieve it. It's just something which bubbles up in our life, individually and collectively, as we find ourselves in God's love. So over the last few weeks, that's what we've been covering. We've been covering uh, what it looks like to be a loving community. Um, Pete covered what it looks like to be a joyful, gentle, and kind community. And Lloyd covered what it means to be a peaceful community, or a community of peace or peacemakers. So today I want to talk about um, a people of faithfulness, what it means to be a people of faithfulness. <clears throat> now, I have a friend, and his name is not Dave, but I'll call him Dave for the sake of it. Just um, He was telling me about his relationship with his dad, and um, <clears throat> the sort of something that his dad said to him before he passed away. And Dave's not of my generation, he's a little bit older than me. Um, so his relationship with his dad was pretty um, formal. It was more characterized by sort of a formality rather than familial relationship. So he didn't, you know, he didn't grow up calling his dad sir, but it was almost that kind of relationship. Um, there was a measuredness to their relationship. And it was really marked by respect rather than affection. And so I was Dave was talking to me about this, and um, he mentioned that you know he he never really remembers his dad telling him that he loved him. You know, he never remembers his dad saying "I love you." It just wasn't the kind of language that his dad would have said. Um, and his dad's passed away now, <coughs> but um, he was talking to me about one of the, the last interactions that he had with his dad. And as he came over to his dad's place, his dad sort of sat up in his chair and was like, "Ah, faithful Dave." And um, and he reflected about his feelings when his dad said that to him. He said that he felt kind of annoyed. He was like, I don't really want to be called faithful, Dave. Like, I'd like to be brilliant. I'd like to be beloved. I'd like to be but faithful, you know. It sounds like a dog. Um, faithful, Dave. But um, since, his, you know, since his dad's passing, he's kind of reflected on this blessing that his dad gave him towards the end of his life and this this title you know of being a faithful faithful son and he's kind of chosen to think about it a bit more and live into it a bit more and um he really is one of the most faithful people i know he's one of those people who's just utterly reliable who's who's always loyal who's always there and um and for him he's as he's kind of let that word sink deeper into him. He's realized that it's a, it actually is a blessing that his dad gave him, speaking that he is this faithful son. Now, and the reason I, I share his story um, is because I just was struck by it, but I also think that, yeah, for us, maybe that word faithful is a little bit kind of like that. It's kind of seen as a bit ho-hum, not really that <laughs> flash or interesting. You know, we might prefer to be like known for being really joyful or really loving or sort of an exuberant person, but a faithful person has this sense of, you know, plodding along and being predictable. And yet, you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've read about it and looked at Scripture, looked at the way faithfulness is described in Scripture, um, I really do think it's one of the most remarkable qualities. It's one of the most beautiful treasures um, in the world, really. To find faithful people is really hard to find. Um, and, you know, the more you look into it, the more you look at Scripture and you look at the character of God, you see that really that word faithfulness could ultimately sum up the whole story. You know, the whole story of God could be summed up by the word 
faithfulness. The entire sweep of the Bible could be summed up by that word faithfulness and God's faithfulness. I think it's at the core of his character. Um, <coughs> so in that sense, it's been a little difficult trying to think, how can I cram this huge thing into, into one talk, into one short Sunday talk? Um, so I'm kind of acknowledging that I'm not going to be able to unpack the full depth of, of what it means to be a faithful people, but, you know, limitations acknowledged. Um, I'm going to do my best to sort of rehabilitate the concept for us, maybe um, elevate it a little bit, and, and hopefully um, give us a vision of what it would look like to be a people of faithfulness. Um, so that maybe we would be a little bit like my friend, and when we would hear that word, we would say, yeah, that's me, that's what I want to be. So um, on that, you know, right off the bat, the, the word faithful, because it's an English word, it's already got a bit of distance between us and scripture. Um, and some English words are okay when it comes to translating Greek and Hebrew, and some English words just are really bad. And I think this one's one of the latter, you know, it really lets us down. So it's helpful to look at some of the, some of the biblical languages when we're trying to get our head around this idea of faithfulness. So the Greek word for faith is pistis, and it's not really equivalent to the word faith or faithfulness in English. So we have to add this little cloud of words and meanings around it, like loyalty, um, trust, confidence, fidelity, even allegiance. So faith in, in, the, in the New Testament sense is not just about belief, it's about allegiance and, and it's about surety and um, yeah, loyalty and trust. So even these words, I think, don't fully capture the, the real um, nuance of, of what it means to, to, to talk about faith in a New Testament sense. Um, you know, in many ways, the, the best way to understand the New Testament writers like Paul, when they describe faithfulness in Galatians, um, is to remember that Paul was a Jew, so he was writing in Greek, but he was thinking in Hebrew, if you like. He sort of had a Hebrew mind, and he was writing in, into a Greek culture. So if we really want to get a bigger picture of what the word means, um, we have to start thinking about the Old Testament in view of this concept of faith. So in Exodus chapter 34, there's a story which probably we're all familiar with of Moses going up Mount Sinai and um, God passing, passing him by. So Moses nearly comes face to face with God at the top of the mountain. And, and as God passes Moses, um, Moses hears God speaking and God is revealing his name as he passes, his, passes him by. He says, this God says, Yahweh, Yahweh. I was, I am, and I will be the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. So this is what God says as he passes by Moses, um, describing who he is. It'd be really fun to unpack each of those terms, but there's two which I just want to focus on this morning. Um, hopefully, here we go. Um, so loyal love and faithfulness. So God is describing himself as one who's full of loyal love and full of faithfulness, um, chesed and emet. And I think these two words um, are in mind for Paul when he's describing pistis, when he's describing faith. Um, whenever the New Testament describes faith, I think it describes this whole big cloud of different words. So um, if we look at that 
word cloud. I don't know so if you can read it, but um, if it's too small, but um, but yeah, we see that it's quite a rich concept. Eh? There's um, there's a sense of yeah stability, reliability, truthfulness, continuance, sureness, kindness, mercy. All of this is wrapped up in this character of God. Um, and I've been thinking, you know, what what it would be like to be part of a church that's marked by these kinds of qualities. Um, what it would be like to be to have a reputation in the city of being a place that's reliably merciful, that's steadfastly loving, um, that's loyal to truth and loyal to each other. And that's, that's known for being a community that is sure and steady in the way it practices kindness, if that would be what our reputation would be like, uh, it would be amazing. Being known for our deep allegiance to one another and to God, it would be such an amazing church to belong to, I think. And we see glimpses of this. You know, we see glimpses of this within ourselves. We see glimpses of this within our church um, from time to time. But if we are honest with ourselves, we realise that we're quite. I know uh, we're not exactly always like this, are we? They're not necessarily innate qualities to who we are. Um, speaking for myself, I mean, I don't. I don't mean to sound too pessimistic, but you know, <laughs> when I'm left to my own devices, I tend to be. Not very reliable. Um, I, I tend to be uh, about as stable as I don't know this pulpit or a, or a house of cards. You know, I, I'm on my own without help from God. I'm not. I don't really have much of this going on in me. Um, like I don't find it difficult to be kind to people most of the time if they're kind to me. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I don't. You know, it's not a huge struggle to be loyal. Uh, to a winning team, but it's hard to be loyal to something where, you know, uh, my reputation's called into question. Um, so these things are part of us, but it's like we see them in just these shallow ways. And I guess, yeah, so what I'm saying is none of this comes naturally to us. It's not really in us. Um, a few Sundays ago, Lloyd was talking about, about being a peace, the difference between being a peace lover and a peace keeper. And he was talking about the way that those two things are actually pretty natural dispositions. You know, not many people wake up in the morning kind of relishing conflict and looking for a fight. Like, most people like peace. You know, most people will try to keep peace if they can. Um, But being a peacemaker is a totally different kettle of fish. It's a totally different disposition because a peacemaker is someone who (laughs) finds themselves going into the heart of bitter conflicts. A peacemaker is someone who gets right into the heart of conflict. Um, so there's a, a really different quality to peacemaking than, than to people-pleasing and the other kinds of things which maybe come naturally. And the same with joy, you know. Um, we probably all know, we probably all have some people in our lives who are kind of like happy Labradors that just are always happy and bounding along and glass half full and, um, and seem to be, yeah, just optimistic about life. But um, when we see joy in the face of loss or joy in the face of suffering, it's perplexing, it's odd, it's strange, it's alien, it's, it's unnatural. Um, it seems to, that kind of joy seems to be something which comes from outside oneself. So it's the same with this fruit. It's exactly the same with this fruit of faithfulness. 
It's uh, not just a personality quirk. It's not just that some people are better at it than others. Spirit-inspired faithfulness emerges in the face of totally hopeless context. It, it, it emerges in the face of things which are completely hopeless. That's where spirit-inspired faithfulness appears. Um, it, it emerges where there's nothing to gain from a situation and everything to lose by associating with somebody or something. That's where spirit faithfulness comes into play. And so spirit faithfulness comes from without rather than from within. And I want to give you an example of what I mean. Um, <clears throat> from this book, Saints and Stirrers by Geoffrey Troughton, it's about the peacemaking tradition in New Zealand. Um, so some of you may be familiar with the story of two Māori missionaries called Te Manihira Pūtama and Kiriopa Hemi Pātini. Um, they have a feast day every year in the Anglican Church on the 13th of March to remember them. But these, these two Māori missionaries have, be, have become part of the story of, of the church and the story of this country. Te Manihira and um, Kiriopa were part of the bigger general revival that was going on in the 1830s in New Zealand. They were um, uh, that you know prior to the treaty, there was a mass movement of of you know conversion and and people coming to faith. There were much more Māori than Pākehā Christians in this country at that time. And um, when Te Manihira was was young, he was captured by uh, a Tainui tribe and was a slave and then he was captured again by um, Napui and taken north and then on his way north he was at Cape Brett just off the coast of Whangarei and um, was sold for the price of a few biscuits to a passing schooner which was going up to Tonga. So he ended up on this boat and went up to Tonga and on the boat was a Wesleyan mission organization that were going up to Tonga to start a mission. And so he got to know these Christians and eventually returned to New Zealand after spending time with the Wesleyans and became a teacher and an evangelist and a theologian and worked within the Church Mission Society down in South Taranaki, which was at that time was overseen by a British missionary called um, Richard Taylor. So... Um, Taylor described this guy, Te Manihira, as someone in whom, quote, for love for God and man beamed in his very countenance and was manifest in all his actions. So Taylor, this British missionary, looked at Te Manihira and Kiriopa and um, he sort of held them in really high regard. He noticed that there was something special about these two. He wrote about the way they demonstrated, quote, the wonderful effect and power of the gospel on the mind. And so Taylor describes this large gathering of Māori Christians in Whanganui down in, uh, in 1846 at Christmas. It was kind of like a conference, <laughs> if you like, um, down in Whanganui. And uh, this conference, this season, was marked by lots of prayer meetings and worship and uh, much further, uh, as he says in his diary. And uh, he records that, you know, there were over 2,000 people there. Um, 88 adults were were baptized during the meeting. So it was like a very exciting time and lots of life. And it was during this prayer meeting at this gathering down in Whanganui that um, Te Manihira and Kiriopa sensed a specific calling 
to go on this mission to um, to preach peace to a tribe, uh, Ngati Tufari Toa, who were up in south, the south of Taupo. And the reason it was such a risky mission was because it was set against this backdrop of hostility between these two tribes. The tribe that um, that the, that Te Manihira and Kiriopa came from was Ngati Ruanui, and they were going up to Ngati Tufari Toa, which was at, in the middle of a kind of conflict. So a number of people warned them about the danger of doing that. They said, you don't want to do that. Um, is you probably uh, shouldn't do that. <laughs> you, you're going to get seriously in, in trouble if you go into their territory because they're seeking Utu, they're seeking revenge for some killings that had happened on the other side. So they're advised not to go. But Te Manihira insisted that... Um, that they, he and Kiriopa, were tapu to the Lord, sacred, set apart for the Lord, and that they must press on. So Taylor, the missionary, recorded in his diary their reasons for going, and um, you have to excuse the kind of language he uses, which is of its time, but this is what he writes in his diary. The duty of aiding those still sitting in heathen darkness was alluded to when Manihira arose and said, they had received the Christian faith from the distant country of England. And if we left our native land in obedience to the Lord's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel, surely it was theirs also to do the same amongst their own benighted countrymen. For his part, he willingly offered himself as a missionary to go to his enemies, the Topor natives, who were still heathen. So in, 18, so in February, after Christmas, um, in 1847, these two guys set out and they went on this mission of, of peacemaking and reconciliation. Um, they, <coughs> they visited many groups along the way and the various groups they met along the way all said, don't go to this place, don't go to Ngāti Tūwharitoa, um, you won't return alive. But they carried on, visiting mission sta stations all the way through Rotorua and Tarawera to encourage their friends. And when they eventually got to Taupo, they moved along the southern shore um, towards Tūrangi. And in Motuteri, they were again, they were warned um, that the tribe they wished to go among was a very wicked one. This is a very wicked one, <laughs> where the um, people would not listen and probably kill them. But Te Manihira responded that the reason they were being told they should go no further was the very reason they should press on. Their kaupapa was to preach the gospel to the wicked. That's how they said it. And so they went, um, unarmed with a party of 10 others, of young people, to preach the gospel to their enemies. And on the morning of March the 12th, 1847, Te Manihira had expressed um, presentiment that, that he was going to die. So he, he said that during the night he'd had a dream that he had been, um, quote, in the Ranga and met with many of his deceased friends who told him he should soon be with them. And so the next morning they were ambushed and killed. And uh, this was all at the order of Ngāti Tūwharitoa to settle the score between Tūwharitoa and Ngāti Ruanui. And later on, when T Richard Taylor heard the news of their martyrdom, this is what he said. He preached that the Almighty would overrule this sad event for good. He prayed that just as Saul, who consented to Stephen's death, later became the chiefest of apostles, so too may this tribe, 
which is consented to and joined in this cruel murder hereafter become eminent in its love for God. Um, and at a gathering afterwards to remember and mourn um, Te Manihira and Kiriopa, um, a CMS teacher, another Māori teacher called William Te Todi, suggested this analogy that um, <clears throat> just as a, an old kahikatea when it falls down, it, um, a, a thick grove of young seedlings emerges and sprouts up. This was what was happening in the church. So it was decided at that point that from then on, um, Māori missionaries would be sent two by two um, until such a time that uh, Ngāti Tū Wharitoa converted. And in the end, peace prevailed. So this is the, the meeting house um, just south of Taranaki where the meetings and the prayer meetings happen. This is in Tūrangi. Um, <coughs> so yeah, two, two years later, after ordering the deaths of Te Manihira and um, Kiriopa, Ngāti Tūwharetoa, the, the tribe, ended up giving land um, and building a church and a mission station in the very heart of their territory. And uh, Taylor wrote, you know, he was invited to come and preach the day they opened it. And he wrote about the day it was consecrated, noting that <laughs> he was unable to, basically unable to preach because he was so overwhelmed with um, emotion at this event. And so that kind of ended the ministry of Te Manihira and Kiriopa. It also begun their ministry, if you like. And inscribed on their gravestones uh, are the words from Revelation 12, verse 11, which says, And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Which is pretty cool. It's a, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Um, and good to remember. Um, but I've, you know, been pondering it about how do we bring this into our context, I guess? Um, it's inspiring, isn't it, to hear stories like this, of this kind of faithfulness, of this kind of commitment to the gospel. Um, but how does it relate to me and my life and my where I'm at, I guess? <laughs> you know, the expression of faithfulness in these two people is really clear. Um, it's almost like a staring at the pure form of faithfulness. Um, and I guess it's helpful to look at these pure form expressions because it helps us to see the little glimmers of faithfulness that are within us, <laughs> within our church. So Te Manihira and, and Kiriopa uh, understood the gift they'd received. You know, when they talked about, you know, that these missionaries had come from England to tell them the gospel, well, we need to go as well. So they understood that they'd received something really precious in terms of their relationship with God and their spirituality. So they were full of gratitude at the very heart of who they were. Um, <coughs> there's a story of a young trainee Māori missionary in Tarawera who wrote of his impression of Te Manihira, saying, we all loved him for his manifest love of God. So people who were around these guys noticed that there was something about them. They really loved God. They weren't... Um, idealistic. <laughs> they knew what they were heading into. They didn't think it was going to be easy. Um, and yet in the face of such a destabilizing context and such a, 
um, daunting circumstances. They demonstrated real confidence in, in God, allegiance to, to God, allegiance to his way, um, and stability and reliability and sureness in their witness in terms of what they were bringing, and ultimately steadfast love and kindness towards their enemies. And, um, you know, while Te Manihira and Kiriopa's stories are amazing and worth telling, um, it's still, their stories are just a broader echo of the story of Jesus, of the story of Jesus' faithfulness. So in Jesus, we see the exact same dynamic, right? We see the very same impulse at work of one who goes to a hostile people with a message of reconciliation, knowing that it, what it would cost, um, and yet going anyway because of his great love for us. So in the incarnation, um, we don't read all of that, but in the incarnation, God expresses his faithfulness to us by becoming one with us, by identifying with us. And this is God on a mission. As it says in, in John 1, you know, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Or as it says in Philippians 2, um, similarly, you know, Jesus didn't use his status to his advantage, but instead emptied himself by becoming a slave and dying on a cross. So all of, all of this is done as an expression of God's great love for us. Um, it was his, his steadfastness, his faithfulness, his um, unwavering commitment to us that set him on his course to the cross. He, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't um, a reluctant mission. He wasn't tricked into going. Um, he went um, fully present and fully aware of what he was going into. And I think that's why in Revelation, Jesus is referred to with the title, The Faithful Witness which is literally in the Greek, hopistos um, homatos, the faithful martyr. But he's not just a, a martyr, though, um, like Temanihira and Kiriopa. He's not just a martyr. He's, he's also the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So <laughs> he's a living martyr. He's, he's still the faithful witness, but he's also a living martyr. A living witness. And, um, you know, going back to, to John's gospel, um, where it says, you know, that he came so that all believe, who, who believe in his name, this word, who, who believed, um, pisteus, and, um, is the same. It's that pistis word, all who trusted in him, all who remain con confident in him, all who give allegiance to him, receive the right to become children of God. So at the very heart of the gospel is this expression of God's love and faithfulness to us. And it's that faithfulness, it's his faithfulness, which begets our faithfulness. It's his faithfulness, which was born in Temanihira and Kiriopa. That was Jesus' faithfulness to them, which produced their faithfulness to Natu um, Toa. Or as Paul says in Romans one seventeen, you know, the gospel is revealed through faith, for faith. So it begins with God's faithfulness and it expresses itself in our faithfulness. And um, as I said, you know, <coughs> at the beginning of this talk, 
Um, the fruits of the Spirit um, are just qualities of Christ. They're not something that we need to drum up within ourselves with a whole lot of willpower. They just form in us as we live in God's love. So nowhere in the Bible is faith seen as something that can be produced by people. It's not something which we produce by our own self-effort. Um, even in cases where Jesus says things like, your faith has made you well, it would be better to say that um, in you know, the faith that is within you has made you well. Um, the faith that is operating within you has made you well, rather than your faith has made you well. Um, because it's faith as the gift which produces the fruit. Um, good song. <laughs> Um, another way of understanding faith in the in the New Testament is this idea of, of God's divine persuasion. So um, this idea that God is the one who persuades. Um, he's the one who is at work in this equation. He's the one persuading us, and we are just simply agreeing or, or going with him. Um, his, so faith or, originates in God. Um, he persuades us with faith working within us, and we respond to that faith with trust. Um, Karl Barth said, faith is the divine response wrought in people by God. It's always a response, and we never initiate it. Um, and, uh, you know, <coughs> it's probably already been said, but, you know, the, the idea that that belief has, is this idea of giving mental assent to something, as if it's just stuff which goes on in our head, um, is really a, a long way from, from faith. Belief is... is um, is trust. So whenever you see the word belief in the Bible, um, think of the word trust. Trust uh, in something that's inherently trustworthy. Yeah, or in someone who's inherently trustworthy. So, we're almost done. <coughs> Coming back to this question uh, of what it means to be a people of faithfulness. I don't think we actually need to do too much speculating about what this is. It's not a blank canvas. We actually have a pattern. So that the people, uh, a people of faithfulness, what, what that looks like, uh, is a people who follow the pattern of Jesus and follow the pattern of people like Te Manihira and Kiriopa. So a people of faithfulness will know at a deep level that they've received something from God. They've received a, a valuable gift that's incomparably valuable. They'll know deeply that they are they belong to God. They've been adopted by God as his children. And they'll have a sense that, that God has pursued them, that God has come a long way to find them. Like Timanihira and Kiriopa, they had a sense that God had come to find them, had come to come to seek them out, to give them something. And um, a people of faithfulness like like Jesus will be people who are in the neighborhood. There'll be people who are living amongst the world, um, just as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, a people of faithfulness will be an incarnational community. They'll be present in the city, they'll be present to the city and the culture that they find themselves in. Um, and a people of faithfulness will identify themselves with the people out there and the people around them. Um, a people of faithfulness won't be concerned with defending themselves against the world, um, 
or maintaining kind of a, a shallow friendship with the world. Um, they will care about the world. A people of faithfulness will care about the world. Like Te Manihira and Kiriopa cared about Ngāti Tūwhare Toa and identified with the conditions that Ngāti Tūwhare Toa were in. They understood the conditions that they were in and they identified with it and they moved towards it to bring the gift. And, um, yeah. So a people of faithfulness will go into the world. A people of faithfulness will go carrying this gift that God's given them and hold out that promise to, to the people around them that they can become part of God's family too. And, um, yeah, ultimately a people of faithfulness will be a people who um, who serve, you know, for the life of the world, who give for the life of the world in the face of hostility, <laughs> a people who would lay, lay down their lives for the sake of the world, not to prove anything to anybody. Um, they do that because of the faithfulness that's rooted in the faith of Jesus. So they go and they serve the city and they, and they love the city and they identify with people because they, not because they feel like they ought to or because they should, they do it because they are deeply held and loved by God. They've experienced deeply His faithfulness, and that faithfulness will just flow through them towards people around them. Even in the face of suffering. So, yeah. So there's lots more to say about this um, before the party gets any more raging. Um, I think we should probably finish it off there. But, um, yeah, I guess... I just think I would love to see this gift, you know, which is already here among us because the Spirit is here among us, working its way through us like yeast, you know, in the batch of dough. That's that's the Spirit's work is to is to give us faith. It's not for us to think oh, I need to really focus on being more faithful. It's it's for us to say, Lord, give me faith. I need faith. I need to receive faith again. And and to and to let the Holy Spirit work faith through our life, work it into us deeply. Um, so that's not something that we can achieve with a sermon. So um, why don't we stand together and let's wait on God. Let's ask um, God to pour out His Spirit and work faith into our hearts. <clears throat> oh Lord, we thank you for for finding us. We thank you that you sought us out. Even for generations, you've been pursuing us. Jesus, you came to that which was your own, and your own did not receive you. But you came anyway. And you came to us, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. <coughs> and Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would fall afresh on us this morning. Lord, even if our faith feels tiny, if it feels so small compared to the faith we see in Scripture and tradition, <laughs> Holy Spirit, would you breathe on that those little embers, those little sparks, Lord, that are in us? 
Thank you, Lord, that it's not up to us to drum this up. Come, Holy Spirit.